Drugs. Rape. Quality of life. Recovery. Harm reduction. Advocacy. Policy. Treatment. Stigma. Drugs Uncut. The Scottish Drugs Forum Podcast. Hello and welcome to Drugs Uncut, a Scottish Drugs Forum podcast for informal but informed conversation about all things drug related. My name's Kirsten Horsburgh and I'm here today joined by my colleague and co-host Austin Smith. Hello Austin. Hello. How are you? I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm enjoying working from home and having a day out today. (laughs) Good stuff. Um, So today we're going to be talking all about um, the carriage of naloxone by police officers in Scotland. And we're based here at Dilmarnock Police Station to do the interview today and we're really grateful to be joined by our guest, Assistant Chief Constable for Partnerships, Prevention and Community Wellbeing. Gary Ritchie, welcome. Ah, thanks very much for having me. Delighted to be here. Yeah, it's great. So obviously um, there's so much to talk about, about the progress of where we've got to now with police carrying the lock zone. Um, but important, I guess, to kind of look back at where this all started. So um, you've been involved in this project now for some time. How many years are we talking oh, about? Oh, geez. Two, two years, I think, probably. Probably more than that now, actually. Well, since I, since I took up this job, really, almost coincided with the establishment of the Drugs Death Task Force where I, where I first met you. Oh, we'll talk you, about that. Oh yeah, you like that <laughs> finger in my face. And uh, yes, it was, uh, so that's, so whenever that was, I mean, that's, that's, that's you know, yeah, that's two, quite a while ago now. Years, well, two and a bit years ago I've been in post. So. Yeah, because it's difficult to work out the timings because 2020 feels like such a write-off. Um, but. Yeah, so I mean, I've been with Scottish Drugs Forum now for nine and a half years. Um, and when I joined the organisation to work on the Naloxone project, I mean, Austin, you'd been having Naloxone discussions before me. I'd been working on Naloxone in a local area. Um, but when I joined, I became a member of, at the time, what was the National Naloxone Advisory Group. And at that time, the group itself had membership from Police Scotland. Well, was it even Police Scotland? Yeah, it was Police Scotland at that time. What year did you become Police Scotland again? 2013. 13, no, so it wasn't quite Police Scotland then at that point. Um, So that was in 2012. So there were a lot of early discussions with local policing areas around their potential interest in being involved in the Naloxone programme. Um, at the time, obviously, we only had the injectable naloxone, so we were having discussions with local areas. So this conversation has been going on for many years um, around it. Wh- wh- why is it you think that it has taken so long for us to get to this point where police are actually carrying it? I mean, we've been pushing for it a long time. The reality is that pol- police are often faced with overdose incidents, but mm. what is it you think that's been the biggest sort of hold-up for taking this forward? <clears throat> I mean, I suppose the biggest hold up, um, and you touched on it there, was that it was uh, injectable to begin with. It was a, it was a syringe, and I think, you know, certainly for our staff associations, they were implacably opposed to that. Um, and I know we'll come on to it. The position hasn't changed, but I, I think it was a, a, an easy argument for them to make, or an easier argument for them to make when it's a syringe. You know, that police officers shouldn't carry it with the the potential risks associated with that, you know, when when they're when they're using it, you know, the the it's certainly an easier argument to make that something might go wrong when you're if you inject it in the wrong place, you know, and and that whole 
thought about, you know, this isn't something that really policing should be doing, you know, it's, you're giving somebody an injection, that's, an, that's a medical thing to do. Um, it, it, it wasn't hard to convince the service, and I'm not just talking about in Scotland, probably across the UK, um, that, you know, that, that that's not a role for police and that we should stick to our traditional role there by which is, you know, and I, I suppose you could say uh, enforcement. So, so that was um, probably the, the, the biggest stick, um, sticking point. But, you know, quite a traditional service in, in the UK as well. I think we, we have been uh, perhaps a bit too traditional in the, the early part of the, the 2000s, you know, kind of wakening up at that point to public health approaches. And, and policing getting more involved in, in, in public health, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a cultural thing. It takes a long time to change a culture. You know, people who were perhaps, and this isn't criticising anybody, it's just my, my reading of it, people at the, the top of policing organisations perhaps having a, a more traditional idea of what policing should do and shouldn't do. Um, so we kind of slowly modernised, I think, over, over the... The, the, the kind of years since the, since the early 2000s and a lot of the public health work that we've been doing elsewhere, I think, helped us to grow into a more informed organisation and, and have a more sophisticated and progressive idea of where policing should be and where policing should go in, in the future. Uh, Austin, you'll remember loads of those uh, conversations and you'll seen those changes through from Police Scotland throughout the years as well. Yeah, and, and it was always, I mean, as somebody who's a distance from that, it there was always that contrary thing because I'm sure, you know, it's, it's different in the cities maybe, but in rural Scotland, if you dial 99, the police might be the first person there. And so they're confronted with that notion that uh, there's somebody in front of them who's unconscious and obviously in a medical emergency. Uh, and, and you're the person to deal with it. Uh, so, so it was it was more stark for me, looking at this from a million miles away, for the police, the police's potential wrong there was more stark than in the cities where most of the overdoses, uh, fatal overdoses occur uh, in, in larger towns and cities, where you can think, well, you know, I've got two minutes here and, and then a, an ambulance may, may arrive. Um, so, so there was always that, thing for me that it, I, I thought it was a starker th thing for, for some police than, than others. And then you're, you're absolutely right, you know, that thing, and I think it's, that was true for families and, and, and other groups uh, who, who were coming on board as the, the syringe is, is, is a barrier, because people see that as a medical thing that involves uh, somebody who's a specialist, which of course it doesn't when you're talking about injecting yeah. drug use, because people yeah. are non-specialists uh, self-administering administering drug, drugs to other people. Uh, and, and can learn that you know the basic basics of that are to be taught it. So yeah, no, and, and the the change in police stuff. I mean, I suppose the thing that strikes me about police Scotland and Naloxone is the very opposite of what the rest of Scotland's like. In the rest of Scotland, we tend to have consensuses, and you've got a consensus, but you've not got the leadership to impose that. So people, have, there's a sense of what should be done, and maybe even how it should be done, but nobody's willing to lead it or fund it or put their, their name to it or whatever. Whereas in Police Scotland, what you seem to, to have, you had a lack of consensus on, on the ground, as it were. People were starting to buy into the notion. Uh, but you actually had some leadership, if I can say that to you. So you, 
you are what the Daily Record would inevitably call it, a top cop, and you've had to show some, some leadership in that. So, I mean, I, I suppose the challenge of that would be interesting to discuss because, as I say, that, and this is my personal view, but there's a lack of leadership in Scotland around the whole drugs debate and many of the things we could be doing. So how does that feel to be that person? Is, is it lonely? Um, no, not at all. I mean, it did, it did feel a bit perhaps at the start, but I mean, I, I didn't really kick it off. There was, a, there was a group that had been established prior to me taking, taking the lead here that was led by our Deputy Chief Constable Fiona Taylor, looking at uh, the potential for police to carry naloxone. But it, it really, without criticising anybody, it was, it, was, it was stuck in the narrative that was presented by the, the staff associations and the, and, and the federation, you know, which who or who had presented obstacles which they said would you know were were insurmountable. So it kind of got to a point where the potential for us actually doing it was presented to our to our broader executive. Now I had been involved prior to that, but it was presented to our broader executive, and it was then came down to me and my new role uh, as as leader to present. A, a proposal about how we could do it. So it wasn't agreed at that point. Uh, the principle of it was presented through DCC, DCC Taylor's group to the executive and then the chief asked me to develop the proposal. So that's how I came to take the leadership of that. In the interim, the Drugs Desk Task Force had kicked off. I had met Kirsten. She'd given me the waggy finger to say, why an Arthur police officer's not carrying this? Um, it's complete common sense. Um, and, and I don't mind saying, you know, the, the narrative that I'd heard before was very much a narrative that had been presented by the staff associations about all the dangers. To my eternal shame, um, I still thought at that point we were talking about injectable naloxone. I didn't know that we had nasal naloxone at, at that point. And I think in our initial conversation, I probably appeared quite reluctant to you. And, that, and I remember that evening. Uh, going away and Googling it and, and for, it took me about 10 minutes to inform myself about it and feeling, and I've said, I've said that before publicly, actually feeling quite ashamed at, at my position and a wee bit ashamed at the position that the, the force had adopted um, and that probably as, as senior leaders in the organisation, not just me but a lot of my colleagues were not as well informed about what, what was being proposed and the potential there for policing, uh, as, as we should have been. So, so that was the kind of turning point moment for me, and that allowed me to put an awful lot of energy behind presenting that proposal to, to the Chief Constable that we should, we should embark in trying to change in Police Scotland and have, and have police officers carrying a locksmith. And Carol Hunter, um, who's been, she, she's lead pharmacist for Greater Glasgow and Clyde, she's obviously been invested heavily in, in this idea about police carrying naloxone for a long time as well. And her and I had met relatively quickly when I joined SDF all those years ago and had discussions about it. And she'd been involved even before me talking with, with police about this. And we've had so many colleagues over the years for Police Scotland um, chain. And then you feel like you're, you, you would feel like you were getting somewhere and that and then all of a sudden person would change roles and you would yeah. start again with somebody else. So when I first started going to that drug strategy group that you're referring to, normally my boss, the CEO, SDF, Dave Liddell, would go to it. But on the times where he was unavailable, I would go in place. 
of him. Uh, so unlucky for you, that was one of those one of those days uh, when we first met. So previously, we I'd been working quite a lot with Assistant Chief Constable Steve Johnson, who had been really supportive of the idea of naloxone, and he'd been chairing that group for a while. So then we had this new chair. Um, <laughs> ACC Gary Ritchie and there was like no naloxone getting discussed at this meeting so I'm sitting twitching my fingers thinking right somebody's gonna have to mention this and it's gonna have to be me <laughs> so I was like right so where are we at with the conversations about naloxone and I do really clearly remember thinking I don't think Gary Ritchie is going to be up for this and like we've done all this work and um, this is going to be another battle now to try and get somebody else into the thinking that this is a good idea but I mean credit to you for going away and actually having a look at the the evidence um, following that. I don't remember shouting and swearing at you or anything like that. No, this yeah, is all a myth. It's selective memory, <laughs> I think, yeah, actually. But it was, I mean, it was... I mean, I, I think that was maybe... My, and I'm not saying this to be defensive, probably my third, third week in this, this role and uh, pitched into even the drug strategy side of things, you know, the broader drug strategy side of things. It's not it's not something that in my, my career up to that point I'd had a lot of involvement in. I'd been kind of far more operationally focused in, in my career. So it was so it was all a bit it was all a bit new to me. Um but as I say, it, it's yeah, and you always say it, Kirsten, you know, it's a no-brainer, and it is to me when you, when you look at it. And we'll, as I say, we'll, we'll probably come on to chat about the kind of opposing views. I don't, I don't think there's an opposing view to this. There's the view that, um, that, that policing should do the right thing. And then there's, there, is, there is a view that I don't think aligns with what our values are as a service anymore. Yeah, well, we'll definitely will come to that, I'm sure. Um, so I was just going, you mentioned the Drug Desk Task Force uh, briefly there, so all of these groups and this work um, was going on in the background, these groups that were happening with the discussions around where we were at with Naloxone and police. And then the task force came along and you were a member of that group. Um, can you remember some of those early conversations with the task force and what that looked like? Yeah, I do. And, and again, remembering being quite, e even though... By, by that point, you know, I was persuaded it was it was the thing to do. But and I, and again, this isn't to, to criticise the, the task force. I, I I did feel at some point, you know, that we, we acknowledged the fact that addiction and the drugs death problem uh, arising from that, you know, is really really complex. You know, there's not a silver bullet. Uh, there's so many issues that that go into that. Um, but and I, and I can understand why we're doing this. There was a real focus on police carrying naloxone, um, and I, and I don't think that necessarily has helped our, our argument to persuade going forward. If if I, if I can be so bold, because it, it sometimes looks as if we think this is this is the one thing that will make will make the difference because of the focus on it, and that allows those arguments. You know about you know this, it's, it's all about the police again, you know. But this is just a stick and plaster approach, and of course it isn't. But that was kind of, I think, as the Drugs Desk Task Force was getting established, there was it, it felt like there was a, a big focus on what we weren't doing um, and not enough, and I still, if I'm being honest, don't think there's enough focus on what, not just the police, but the broader criminal justice system can do to, to help people get out of addiction. I, I, do, I do think there's a role there, and, and 
I suppose my defensiveness came from my reading of the, the, the kind of broader debate, which seemed to be, when you're talking about decriminalisation, really moving criminal justice just completely out, out the way altogether. Um, and, I, and I think there is a really positive and impactive role there for the criminal justice system to play um, and, and helping here. So, so that was, that was my, my early experience. Again, being quite defensive. And and I guess you're meaning when you're talking about criminal justice stuff, talking about like diversion programmes and stuff. Absolutely, you know, well, we're there as you as you rightly said. You know, we, you know, that pe people who live with uh, addiction behave like people who live with addiction, and unfortunately, that can take them into spaces where they're committing crime uh, or, or disorder, and that's where we become involved. So we have direct contact, and sometimes the first contact there. So um, so you, you can't ever, I don't think, take us a, a, away from that. Um, what we can do then is, as you say, is then offer a, offer a more structured approach to how we actually deal with people who are living with addiction. We've trained our officers now better to identify um, the people who are in that, uh, that circumstance. It, it, it's no harder. Our officers now have have grown up, I think, in a more informed culture where, whereby they understand where addiction comes from, they understand that people who are um, living with addiction are vulnerable, uh, regardless of the fact that they may be committing low-level crime, that they may be, um, you know, instigators of low-level disorder, you know, in, in their community etc. They're still informed in that way and, and are able to recognise people who would benefit from the support of other services and, and access those, or at least inform those services on their behalf. We're, we're, I, I, I don't think that's a big cultural step for us. I, I, I think we're there. What we actually need now is that kind of supportive um, structure and mechanisms around about that that allows us to do that in a more efficient way. What's your thoughts on that, Austin? No, I, I, I agree. Um, but it's interesting, actually, that you started that out by saying that decriminalisation would take the police out of it, because it would take a traditional police role out of it, obviously. Uh, but, but as you say, people are involved. You know, that wider insight is possible for the police to have that insight. And you're right, your local uh, police officer is more likely to find out about your drug problem long before your GP does, uh, because that would be your first presentation to services, if you like. Um, but actually, you know, where you've got decriminalisation, like in Portugal, people are still stopped about you know being in possession of drugs, and and then that's dealt with in a way that you know isn't a traditional criminal justice route and diverts people from that. But it, that key contact is is still with it, with the police and enforcement. So, you know, so so actually, you know, I'm just reflecting back to you that 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 traditional police. Thing is part of your own mentality when you think of decriminalisation taking the police out of it because the police could be have a crucial role under under a decriminalised uh, environment. But suppose in danger of being in furious agreement here. I guess my point is that the perception would be that it would take police out of it. I agree with you a hundred percent, and and I think I'd maybe said that you're ne we're never going to not be there. You know, we're never going to not have to respond to calls or. Or criminality, you know, it might it might be that you know that uh, the possession of drugs gets decriminalised, but people who are living with addiction are actually still yeah, yeah. going to commit crime. Yeah, you know, to, 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 to you know, so that that's I think the, the the 
the thing for me around about decriminalisation is the focus on that being now being the, the, the silver bullet. I just think we need to be careful about that. I, and, and I also do think if, if, that, if that's our focus, then I think we can be so focused on doing one thing that we miss opportunities, you know, to, to, to actually put a bit of attention onto others. So we focus on decriminalisation. We miss the fact that there's still actually an awful lot that we can do in, in the current legislative framework. Yeah, so see these phrases like stick in plaster and silver bullet, they really wind me up and they get said a lot in like training and stuff and we'll come on to talk about the training. But especially when it's used to describe naloxone, um, because ultimately this person is there, they're dying, if this medication helps save their life, why are we seeing this as a stick in plaster solution? So what, what are we saying that we just don't bother with naloxone and I think naloxone itself has become something that's criticised a lot recently um, by different groups and different people and it's because there has been like you say so much emphasis on naloxone and but that is not a, you know to disregard anything else that's happening it just like seems like the drug consumption room issue is another thing. Don't worry, I won't take you down the conversation of that on today's podcast. But uh, certainly, uh, it's another thing that when you say talk about it in uh, on Twitter and social media and stuff, you get loads of people saying, "Oh, we don't need drug consumption rooms. We need this." So it's like everybody's pitting all these things against each other. When then the reality is, we need everything. Everything like, at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like it, you know, it's got to such a huge scale issue about the numbers of people that are dying that we can't just pick and choose which no. bits we like. We need all the evidence-based approaches for everything, and I think that's people get fixated on we're just doing this, we're only doing that, and we should be doing no, that, when actually exactly. we should be doing everything. That's my point. You know, if, if we're saying that it's a cultural problem, then it needs every single part of the culture to step up and do something about it. You know, and policing major part of culture in, in Scotland. So, so we need to. We can't just keep doing the things. I mean, that's my point. We can't keep doing the things that we're doing, and hope suddenly that we we are going to be able to help the problem then because we're, we wouldn't be so we need to try different things and I, and I agree with you I mean I, 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 the last thing I want to do is upset you in case you wag your finger at me again but it's um, you know when I said that, that that is how it's portrayed you know yeah. just please and, and it became so much of the, of the focus to my reading of it in the same way as decriminalisation becomes too much of the focus that you actually miss exactly what you're talking about you know yeah. that it's only one element of it and if we can't achieve that, then what else can we do with what we've got? So going back to the uh, project itself, I, I just wanted to ask you a wee bit about um, the test bed areas that were chosen to take part in the project. What was the sort of thinking around the areas that you chose and what are those areas for those who are just first hearing about this now that they're listening? So we started off with the East End of Glasgow, um, Falkirk and Grangemouth and Dundee. Um, now, I, I wanted places where there was, because it, for me it goes beyond just the administering and the locks on. You know, it's, a, it's about actually then engaging with, with services and partners who can help the people who we've found in, in all of those situations. Um, on their fatal, I mean, I've, to me, I've, I, I don't know the, the actual term, but to me, every overdose is a near fatal overdose. So if, if somebody's in an overdose situation, then we need to be in a position to be able to highlight the fact that we've stepped in, that we've intervened, uh, we've potentially helped save someone's life, but that that individual's vulnerable and needs support. 
So in these three areas, um, we had strong partnerships in, in play. So an awful lot of work getting done in Dundee, just now running about near fatal overdoses, it's going to be the place where drug testing pilot takes place. Really, really strong partnerships there between uh, drugs outreach and the policing already. Same with Glasgow and the Positive Outcomes Project that, that they're running there, um, which had been running for a while, and again, with a lot of police involvement. And in Falkirk, um, that was a, a really proactive ADP that had there, Alcohol and Drugs Partnership. Um, so th these were the kind of... The, plus, I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it, there were, there were areas that I think Dundee has the highest rate of drugs deaths in Scotland, which has the highest rate of drugs deaths in Europe. So um, th there was an element of that. And the same, I think, in the East End of Glasgow is the highest rate of drugs deaths in Glasgow, certainly. Um, but the main reason was that there was partnership arrangements were pretty strong there to begin with. And those, the training for those areas started in March. March. I couldn't remember if it was March, April. March, <laughs> Seems April. like so so long ago. Um, and I was involved in quite a few of the training well, sessions. Thank you very much. Um, but you attended like pretty much almost most of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what, why did you feel like it was important for you to have? Um, to be there and to talk to the officers that were potentially going to take part? Well, you know, I, I was heading that up. It, it goes back to that point you were, you were making, Austin, about leadership, you know, and talking about cultural change. So there really needed to be, I felt, real visible leadership from an executive level to say this is, this is where the, the police want to go. You know, this is, and, and absolutely let everybody see that. Um, the second reason was, and again we'll come on to it, I, I had felt that the the narrative around naloxone had been misrepresented to our officers um, and that needed to be tackled head on um, and, and the truth and the facts about naloxone presented to our officers and, and the truth about what we were trying to do presented to them by me as a representative of the Chief Constable. So. As you know, the, 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 every training session we start it off with a video for the Chief Constable and then I go on and give a bit more detail around what the, the Chief had said to reassure the officers, to be there to answer their questions um, and, as I say, to pre present an accurate position um, about naloxone, the police carriage and naloxone and, and the reasons for us doing it. And you've got um, a naloxone coordination team as well as part of this project. Did you want to just mention about... What's the, how does that work and, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's actually a big undertaking because we're talking about train, I, I mean, the way, the way it worked was, just for your, your listeners, we, every officer who was in the test bed areas received training, um, which allowed us to do a bit extra training, run, run about dangers at overdose as well and, and first aid. And, and recognising the signs of overdose. So everybody who was in those areas were, was required to undergo the training. And at the end of that training, they would choose whether or not they wanted to take part in a six-month test of change where police officers would carry naloxone visibly in a pouch on their belts that said naloxone on it. Um, and, uh, but, but it was volu voluntary. Uh, and again, there's a couple of reasons for, for that. Um, I'm getting away from your question, but I will come back to it. One being that, again, the staff associations were, were really adamant that police officers should volunteer for it because they felt that officers didn't want to carry it. And that um, 
and also I think it was important for us to measure police officer attitudes. So again, because of COVID, we couldn't just get 800 people into a big room and do one training session. You know, we were limited to doing it about a dozen at a time in three different areas of the country because we couldn't have people driving about the country. So we had the choice of whether we waited until COVID disappeared and would still be waiting, uh, I think. Um, so that, that wasn't a, a viable option. So we decided instead to do it over a, a dozens of sessions in, in different areas. And that takes an awful lot of organisation. So that was why we had the team, and it was a drug death task force that actually funded that team for us. Um, so it took a lot of organisation to pull the training package together. And I'm really grateful to you for, for that, Kirsten, for helping out and for, for coming to so many of the sessions yourself. And then organising just the deployments of police officers coming in and, and taking part in the training. So, And I think it was really useful as well as having you there at the training. Also, Chris Devlin and Dougie Duncan, who did the training uh, for that as well, they had been recently put into that post and had previously been response officers. So That's I right. thought that really helped like to yeah. for them to give that direct perspective of, look, three months ago I was actually in your role and I had some reservations about naloxone, but yeah. now that I've been learning about it and I know everything that I'm, you know, <laughs> I just think it helped with that credibility as well to have them in the, those positions, having recently done the same jobs of the people that they were training as well. So they, they brought with them a lot of credibility yeah. as well. And, it, and you know, we're very honest, you know, they'd heard that kind of prominent narrative about what Naloxone was, it just come from one quarter and uh, and weren't sure about it. But when they got the job, you know, I'd say the first thing you need to do is just take your 10 minutes and go and Google it. And that's, and that's all you need to do. So, so that's what it did. Indeed. So we've mentioned it a few times. So one of the most frustrating things I found about this entire project was that it was such a non-controversial thing made into a hugely controversial issue and mainly driven through the Scottish Police Federation's opposing views around police officers carrying naloxone. Um, do you want to just talk us through, you know, what were the concerns from the Federation or still are the concerns for the Federation and in particular the circular that went out around that? I mean, people listening might not know anything about that at all, so it'd be useful just to hear. So I, I, I should probably mention about, and, and again, I'm not going to go into any kind of um, major criticism of the Federation here. They're entitled to hold a view. Um, I, I think, and I've said before, I don't think it's a view that aligns with the, the values of a modern police service. Uh, and I suppose that's about as far as I'd be, be, willing, be willing to go in terms of criticism. Um, but they are entitled to, to hold that view. The Scottish Police Federation is, is an organisation that is police officers um, who, who run that organisation, but they're kind of separate from the policing organisation. and. Um, semi-independent, if you like, or completely independent as an organisation. And they are the staff association, they are the union that represents the rank and file uh, of, of police officers. So, so a very in influential body. Um, traditionally opposed, I think, to police carrying the zone, which began, as we said before, in terms of carrying syringes. Um, but remained opposed despite the fact that it was uh, we'd moved into a, to a nasal spray. Um, I, I have got to say right at the outset that I, 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 do, I do not understand their continued opposition to it. 
Um, I, I think it's contradictory to their to their own philosophy around about you know the police service being there to help people, to protect to protect life. Um, they are supportive of of other life saving first aid type measures like um, the, the the use of defibs uh, as well. So so I don't really understand having covered all the issues I think that they raised, why they remain opposed, but that's a matter for them. Um, their main points of opposition, I think, was that this was be mission creep because this was policing doing a job that should be health professionals. Um, they are wrong in that view uh, because this is first aid and police officers do first aid. We're trained in first aid. Um, Given somebody in a lock zone as a nasal spray is another form of first aid. The only thing that's different about it is that it's easier, uh, safer for both the police officer and the person receiving it. And in the case of a drugs overdose, thousands of times uh, more effective in, in helping someone. Um, so, and I think it was you, Austin, that had said earlier, you know, we do come across, you know, are in positions where through just the normal course our duties will we'll come across people having overdoses. Um, that's actually happened, and again we'll probably come on to it, more times than even I expected since the start of this, but that just shows you I think the effectiveness of police, police carrying a lock zone. So that position that it is, that it's something that we shouldn't do I think is, is just fundamentally, unarguably wrong. Um, I don't think it's a matter of opinion. I think it is objectively and, and factually incorrect to say that police officers shouldn't use a more effective first aid measure to try and save somebody's life when they're dying at their feet. Um, the, the, the second point was that the ambulance service at the moment, um, as, as there's a kind of broad opinion uh, amongst policing that sometimes when we need an ambulance it's not the quickest in getting there uh, and that the service has changed. The view that was uh, represented, again factually inaccurate, uh, by the, the Federation was that the ambulance service downgrade calls when policing attend, um, but, which again is just not, not the case at all. Um, but their, their call system or the, or the way that they receive calls and information for us, I don't, from us, I don't think helped the fact that calls were perhaps categorised at a lower category than they should have been. So we've circumvented that. We have our officers actually contacting the ambulance directly themselves, and and if somebody's in an overdose situation, then our message to the ambulance service is that they are unconscious and breathing, or unconscious and not breathing. It's either one of the two. If you're going to issue an alloxone. Um and that, and that gives you a priority response for the ambulance service. Uh, we don't get sent to calls that the ambulance would normally get sent to. These are only in cases where police officers where police officers would be anyway, whether they were carrying a lock zone or not. And most of the cases that we've seen when we've used an lock zone, it's either been officers um, been flagged down to to help somebody, or they're attending a, a allocation uh, for another reason or they just come across somebody uh, in virtually every single occasion. And every single occasion that we've been there, we would have been there anyway, whether we're carrying the locks on or not. And then the, 
the kind of third reason was that we were perhaps exposing ourselves to to some kind of legal challenge if things go wrong after that, which again is counterintuitive because they are. Um, it's no different for any first aid we would give them. You know, we're there anyway, we're going to do something, we're going to administer some kind of first aid. If a person thereafter, unfortunately, dies after that, there's, there's no chance a police officer being criticised any more than they would have if they'd given some other form of first aid to try and save their life. Um, but, and this is a real, I feel, low point for me was that, that uh, attempt to coerce officers into not carrying it by saying that they would Federation provide legal cover for police officers in certain circumstances. And they said that they would remove that legal cover if it related to uh, the administration of naloxone. Yeah, I think um, for me, it, the circular from the Federation had a lot of misinformation about naloxone, which is my expert area to comment on. Um, so uh, it was really disappointing that that had an immediate impact onto the start of the training sessions. I really felt that a lot of the uh, questions that were coming up in the training were negatively influenced by what people had heard, some rumours and then discussions that were taking place. So it really um, was a difficult start to the training. Uh, for me, as it went on, uh, a lot of these things were dispelled and the training got a lot more positive <laughs> towards the end. Um, and just what was the uptake in the end? from the uh, from the training? Yeah, so eight, over 80%. I should say we also, I think we missed out the fact that we also ended up going up to Caithness yeah. as well. We, we, we expanded the, um, the test bed areas to include Caithness. As we got to the end of the programme, we thought, you know, we are going to have spare naloxone kits as we knew we would. Um, but perhaps just try somewhere different. And with requests from a lot of areas, actually, from Lanarkshire, from Ayrshire, um, from some, even down to some community policing teams themselves, you know, we had police constables actually contacting the team saying, can, can my team in this particular area get, get trained in it? But we thought the request that had come from Caithness because it seemed that they had a growing problem there. It was a very, very different community to what we'd, we've done before, so we thought give us that point of comparison. So, so we went up there as well. In the end up, we trained 780 over 632 kits, so that's about 80% uptake. And I think from that first training session, as you, as you said there, whereby the, the cops had really just heard the prominent narrative, as I said, had been that, had been presented by the Scottish Police Federation. And, and that didn't really go well, that first training session. So, um, but as you say, it didn't take long for the, there was, there was still two or three took it. And it just sometimes takes that, you know, that, that, that you know, that, that kind of narrative to be countered at that level. And then we started seeing it gradually increasing. And then we had the first use. And that was a turning point. Yeah, so we're at, what date are we on? The 9th of August. Are you able to tell us how many uses we've had up till this date? 33. Morning, and has that been sort of spread out across all the different areas? Where Mainly Glasgow and Dundee, okay. uh, but with uses in, in all the areas, including Caithness. Yeah, and you were saying those have mostly been for uh, police being flagged down or being called to things like concern for person. Yes. And yeah, all the things that we discussed at the start, that this was for an opportunistic use. It was not to uh, replace the service of the ambulance service so that, you know, police would all of a sudden start getting called to overdoses. We've had over the years so many police 
reporting to us about being at the scene of an overdose, maybe a member of the public running over with her naloxone and police not knowing what it was or not feeling able to allow that person to administer it or or the ambulance service arriving and they've administered naloxone and police are left thinking why could we not have just done that and we've had that for years so we knew that police were already at the scene of these types of things um, and it could potentially have naloxone and be able to help so you'll have heard a lot of that Austin over the years as well. Yeah I mean I it's not for me to comment on the, the federations thing, but it stands. But I think there is sort of you know understandable misgivings about you know dealing with somebody who's unconscious and maybe being able to help that person or not help that person. Or, uh, so I can understand just that human fear and the fear of changing your job role and all the rest of it. But there was always anecdotal stuff around uh, police. Uh, concern and wanting to be involved and you know feeling helpless and you know, obviously you know the, the stuff you have to deal with you didn't have to deal with a, a bereaved family and all the rest of it uh, it's, it's very difficult for people. Well, but you're right and I mean that argument that was presented this is going to increase demand on us but for that reason you just say it's not we're going to be there anyway but also it reduces I mean if we reduce the number of drugs deaths and naloxone police carrying naloxone plays a part in it then that's less demand for us you know there's no investigation there's no as you say having to inform the family there's no sudden death report and it just reduces demand and that's the whole spirit behind taking a public health approach to, to things you know forget it right and we do things that are actually aimed at um, improving the broader public health um, and reducing vulnerability, then that's that's going to reduce demand on, on policing. And I mean, that's that's a perfect example of that. Yeah, and, and I mean, some of the, the situations that we've been in, the, the first use of it was an actual fact by, by two officers who just received the training like an hour before, so they took the training they volunteered to get involved, uh, went out and patrol in the East End of Glasgow, and an hour later, um, having got called to, as you said, a, a call a concern for a person. The actual concern was for another individual, but when they were there speaking to that individual, they said, oh, we've got a friend in here who's unconscious, can you get us an ambulance? And that person, I believe, told the officers that uh, they'd taken an overdose, or they'd had an overdose, or they thought they were overdosing. So they used an naloxone in that circumstance and um, and they the brought, brought the person round to, I don't think was breathing at the time, or certainly breathing in a very shallow way. Um, and really from that moment on, certainly in Glasgow, the training took on a different tone, didn't it? I mean, the officers were almost saying, why are you even bothering telling us this? It's a no-brainer, which is really encouraging, actually. And we had the opportunity to hear from Sergeant Graham Fox about his experience of administering naloxone in an emergency situation. So a few weeks ago, I was on patrol uh, in the Den area of Falkirk when I overheard a call on the radio um, about an unconscious male. Uh, two officers had entered the address and found this male unconscious after the concern for a call had been reported. Um, on finding the mail, they reported back over the radio that there was um, signs of drugs misuse within the flat. So I've made the decision as supervisor to attend there. Um, on attendance, I found the mail to be unconscious still. And whilst he was breathing, I felt the breathing has been agonal. Um, a raspy, raspy breathing and I was concerned for, for his health, concerned that he may have had an overdose. Um, that decision, having been trained in naloxone, 
uh, use, I made the decision to administer naloxone at that time. Um, I used one dose um, in his nose. I was quite comfortable with doing that, having, having been trained uh, only a few weeks previous to this. And in doing so, unfortunately, there wasn't any immediate um, reaction or noticeable reaction uh, with the male. He remained unconscious um, and his vital signs didn't, didn't change at all. So after monitoring this for a minute or so, I administered a second dose, knowing at this time that the ambulance were en route to us to assist. Um, after having administered the second dose, there was still no further change and the ambulance arrived shortly after. Um, by administering that I felt more comfortable that I had done something at that moment in time in order to save that person's life rather than just putting that person in the um, recovery position. And when the ambulance staff did arrive I asked them for reassurance that I had done the right thing and they were certainly more than happy with the actions that I had taken um, and comfortable that because I felt there had been an opioid uh, or potential of an opioid um, overdose and that um, this person was unconscious and unresponsive, that, that I was right to, to administer naloxone at that time. As it turns out, um, the male is uh, still receiving medical treatment and there's an undiagnosed condition that may or may not be related to an opioid misuse. However, um, I'm satisfied and comfortable with that the training that I was provided, I've done the right thing at the time. I may have bought that male some extra time by administering naloxone to him, and that you know, even if even if the, his condition wasn't opioid related, um, I've not done him any any harm in any any sense, and I've certainly been fully supported by Police Scotland and the actions I took that day. And it was interesting, another thing that came up was this thing about it being voluntary because um, normally when police are provided with equipment they're just like, here's your equipment, this is the training, you carry this now as part of your duties. And that was an interesting one that police couldn't really get their heads around about why they were, having, why they were getting this choice to carry it or not. Um, so obviously with it being a test of change it was voluntary but is there anything you want to add to well. that? Again, in our kind of early discussions with the Federation, they were they were quite keen. I mean, their, their view was that, that officers didn't, didn't want to do this and we shouldn't make them do it for a test to change. We should give them the choice and that that would then prove to us, you know, that, that police officers were not supportive of this, I think would be would have been their view. Um, and they kind of got that badly wrong. Um, so it's... Uh, so, but I, I was... I was quite confident, not so much after the first training session, but beforehand I was pretty confident, you know, because I mean, I've, I know I know my colleagues, I know police officers want to help people, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the bottom line, when they're in a situation where somebody needs help, they're going to help them, they're going to do whatever they can to help them, and when you actually present them with something to say, this will help, this will help you to help somebody more effectively, the vast majority of them are going to, are going to snatch at it, so, so I knew that. Um, I didn't really have any concerns about it, but I think it's been good. I think the fact that it's been voluntary has has really given us a very strong argument going forward to say that this is not just something that police should do, this is something that the vast majority of police officers want to do. Yeah.
thing that made me most angry about the Federation's stance was that if we'd been talking about a medication for any other group of the population or a life-saving tool that could have assisted children, for instance, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. And I think what drives a lot of it is stigma. And I just wanted to ask a question about some of the stuff that came up in the um, training sessions. There is still a lot of stigma that does exist within police and around people who use drugs. What can we do going forward to try and address some of that? Um, is it training? Is it a culture shift required? What is it? Because you know, I actually found listening to some of the comments in the early training sessions um, quite difficult um, because I felt like I'd gone back in time. <laughs> um, I thought we were past all of these conversations about uh, the way that we treat people who use drugs. So there was still a lot of stigma coming out in some of the conversations and it was important that they were able to do that and have those open conversations so that we could openly challenge some of that. But yeah, what's your thoughts about what's needed going forward to try and address yeah. some of that? I, I would say, and, and again, not to be too defensive, 80% um, 80, 80 Took it, took it willingly. There's, there's yeah. twenty percent who would have various reasons for not taking it, and it's some, but none of them I think valid to be honest. Um, but in in some occasions, um, it's it's not necessarily the the principle. It can be it can be something else. I don't think. Um, I, I no, you're right. I do, I do think at some points there was language used which which disappointed me as well and I needed to challenge back on. Um, I was more in a kind of persuasive mood rather than a challenging mood at that point. Um, but yeah, there was times when I was really disappointed. I mean, we, we were in one location uh, and, I, and I won't say where, but we were in one location where a whole a whole shift refused to carry it. You know, a whole shift that a dozen officers refused to carry it. And I, and I felt really despondent at that point um, because the views that that, that that shift were expressing. I, I honestly don't believe that that's what the officers thought. You know, I, I don't believe in the cold light of day they would look back and think that's what they really believe. I, I think there was just a bit of shift culture and perhaps really strong influence in that particular shift from some of the, the counter arguments that had been presented before. So, so there were there were times like that where it was disappointing, and and there definitely is still still work to do. I mean, remember that, and again, this this is this is not an excuse. This is, I think, a reason for it. As I've said before, police officers are dealing with people who are living with addiction at the times where you know they're committing crime, they're committing disorder. Um, they're creating an impact in their, their community. They're behaving like somebody living with addiction, you know, but the, the, out, the outcomes of that can cause harm to others and create victims of crime, you know, and, and others. So, um, you know, so police officers have to go over that hurdle, first of all, you know, that, that, that might create um, prejudices in their in their mind. Yeah, and just reminding people that folk do go on, make positive changes, but like you say, they don't see that. But I think, but I think our young, I mean, it's a very, our operational officers, you know, are, are pretty young, you know, and, and I think, as I said right at the start, you know, a, a younger generation now is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not afraid, I, I grew up with some of those attitudes because you just, you saw it all the time, you saw, what you, what you saw and what you were dealing with was misery 
um, that was inflicted upon people who lived with someone who was living with addiction. You know, so it's, it's dead easy to get into that mindset of pointing the finger and saying, for goodness sake, just make a choice. You know, and I, and I grew up in the place uninformed like that, just thinking, for God's sake, why, why do you not just stop? You know, without realising, you know, the, the, the complexity of the issues and where they might come from. I think cops who are now at the age that I was then are far better informed are far more educated, they understand about trauma, they understand about adverse childhood experiences to a degree that I didn't uh, open my mind to at that time. And, um, and and that's why I think, you see, that that is a prevailing culture in policing just now. We've still got work to do, as you say, Kirsten, I'm not denying that, but I do think that's a prevailing culture in policing at the moment, and that's why you see 80% of the cops who received that training volunteering to take part in this. Now also, uh, it makes policing more difficult. You know, it's more emotionally challenging uh, to think that you're, you're working with someone who you know you should be working with. Or, uh, they are committing crime, and that crime is damaging to society. And you know, it's part of your uh, role to enforce a law. Uh, but it, 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 it's more of a toll on you to think through the emotions of yes, you're doing that role in that role, but that's not a, a, a solution uh, to the wider societal problem. You're actually dealing with somebody who themselves in turn is vulnerable, in turn is actually a victim of crime in terms of yes. drug supply um, and potentially, you know, a victim of, of their own drug use and a potentially, a potentially overdose and die or whatever. It, it's, it's emotionally complex to, to deal with that and yeah. to think that I, I basically have this narrow role uh, and it's not going to fix this problem in, it, in itself, a bit like we were saying about, you know, the magic bullet and all the rest of it. So, I mean, so you see that cultural change within policing and within society and the attitudes to people that have got a drug problem are maybe uh, different or more complicated than they, they were. But the police themselves need support, yes. support with that. Uh, because actually, if you, if you just think you're the good guys, they're the bad guys and you have to go out there and get them. Uh, you know, th th that's actually an easier job, uh, even though it's largely a fiction that you're, de you're dealing with. I, I, I think most, if not all, police officers know how futile it is to take somebody who's living with addiction and just throw them into jail for behaving like somebody living with addiction. You know, it's... Um, and, and they understand, as I say, to a far greater degree, the complexity of the problem and the fact that Please, that's not going to fix that, you know. So keeping somebody alive is really important. That's, that's the most important thing to start with because if somebody's dead, then you know problems. The the, the ability to solve the problems going. So keeping somebody alive is is the most important thing. So that's what naloxone is. But then, really quickly behind that is getting them the support that they need. And that, unfortunately, I don't think can be provided by policing, but we can be a conduit to that. And, and I, I think that's really broadly understood throughout the organisation now. Another cu cultural thing supposed to do with stigma as well is, and this isn't, this isn't your job as it were, but it's part of the role you play in society, I suppose, is, is the influence of the police. So the, the police generally uh, are seen as you know, authority figures and you know, working from a, an evidence base and so on. So they're not seen as sentimental people or uh, there be some people there with a, an explicitly political agenda or whatever. So the carriage itself is important. If you're walking around communities with something literally strapped to your belt or whatever, um, 
that's uh, there to you know in that role of of valuing those people. So I suppose the, the lives of people who you know challenging and difficult as they are, the, the lives of people who have a, a drug problem uh, are, are valued and, and to be valued is as a driver for an anti-stigma agenda across communities rather than just within the police force. And one of the things, you know, one of the kind of crucial points and 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 why we're doing this as well, uh, I think, is to and, and it's part of our evaluation, which we haven't really spoken about. But you know, there is a broad evaluation which will not will look at not just how many times we we use naloxone and help save someone's life, but but also what police officer attitudes are, but but what community attitudes are too, particularly um, with those who who have an addiction, you know. We, I, I spoke before about the prejudices that might arise within police officers because they're dealing with somebody in those negative circumstances. It's the same the other way around, obviously. You know, and, and that adds to the stigma and uh, how stigmatised a person can feel if, you know, every time... And there's, and there's uh, the kind of living, live breathing um, e example there in the shape of a police officer. You know that that's a person who's going to that's going to arrest me and or charge me and put me into the criminal justice system. You know what we want to know is what they, they might still in circumstances have to do that. But what difference does it make to your attitude towards police officers if they've got a pouch in their belt that shows you that in your worst moment they're going to be there to help, even though you know their, their contact might on every other occasion have been negative. Um, they're still going to help you at your worst moment. Does that change your attitude towards policing? Does it change your attitude towards the fact that, that and even in a wee, even a wee bit, and you talk about just the kind of marginal differences, Kirsten, that some puts a seed in somebody's mind to say that the whole of society isn't against me, the whole of society doesn't think I'm just um, a, 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 a worthless, you know, person who doesn't actually deserve to be part of society. If I can see one of the major institutions in public life showing that they're, they're willing to help me, does that, does that change your attitudes, even a, a smidgen, because that might be the thing that makes a difference. And you mentioned there about the project's going to be evaluated, and I think probably one of the things that I underestimated was the wider community impact that it might have uh, of police carrying it so publicly. I'll be really interested to see if over time because police carrying it so publicly that it encourages people who use drugs to also carry it so publicly because that's been one of our issues about ensuring that people actually carry it on them because they're concerned that if the police see them with it they assume that they have drugs on them, they'll be searched, etc. So it will be interesting to see if that has a positive impact as well. But other positive things that I've seen already are... Um, people requesting naloxone because they've seen police carrying it, um, people getting in touch with services to ask about it because they've heard the police talking about it on the news and also selfishly when we've been trying to look at other organisations involvement, it's like even the police are doing it uh, I know, I know. <laughs> so, um, so being able to talk about the police doing it is having a hugely influential effect on other potential organisations or services getting involved as well where they weren't before, so just to finish my question is 
Where, where do you see the future of this project going with Police Scotland? So obviously you can't preempt what's going to be in an evaluation. It's it's due to finish, I think, in December. Um, but yeah, what's your thoughts about the future? Well, I need I need to take a recommendation back to the to the chief and the rest of the executive about what what we do uh, on this. And as I say, the evaluation is going to be broad on just a number of uses. There is no doubt about it. The fact that we've got thirty. 33 uses um, so far as 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 a phenomenal fact far far I mean I, I thought if we were if we were lucky we would have half a dozen through the course of the, the six months uh, test change um, if we keep going at this rate we're going to have over over 50 so that that just shows you how naive I am um, the I mean that's hugely positive and hugely I think persuasive in terms of what we should do for the for the future, and just sadly highlights how big an issue yeah, it is, okay. doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. it continues to be uh, in a society, and it's going to continue for for years yet. You know, we're not suddenly just going to change that uh, over overnight. Um, but it's also about you know those community attitudes and the attitudes of policing, and it all looks at the moment as if it's pointing in the right direction for me to be able to um, recommend. To the, to the executive that this, this is something that we should do routinely. Um, and how we do that might be different than it looks just now. It might not be every single officer carrying it. Um, it might not be in every single area. That's something that we need to work through. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying that. But I, I can imagine, um, you know, un, unless there's some kind of calamity between uh, now and then relating to naloxone, um, it's going to be a, a, a fairly strong recommendation that we, uh, as, as, a, as a force, routinely carry, have police officers carrying naloxone in, in Scotland. Um, and in actual fact, we're kind of catching up with the rest of the world in, in that extent, you know, and it's something that, again, that I wasn't aware of before, but our colleagues in Canada and in America and, and in other European countries, you know, have been doing this for years and saving hundreds of lives every year. Save hundreds of lives every year, you know, and so so the so the future for Scotland is as as I think, as I say, dependent on the evaluation, but likely to be some kind of recommendation, and then it'll be up to the executive of what we do. I would hope they would be supportive of that. Um, I think more pleasing to me as well as, as I say, we this is by far the biggest test of change in the locks on in the UK. The only other forces that had tried it prior to us starting were West Midlands and they, I think, had 50 officers carrying it. Uh, and North Wales, I think, had a, had a few officers carrying it as well, but not very many. Now we're starting to see forces from down south chatting our door and asking us about it because they're interested in doing it. So you're seeing a real groundswell of interest across the United Kingdom um, of police forces, I think, realising and, and waking up to the fact that this is, as we've said, a no-brainer, common sense, absolutely in line with policing values and absolutely in tune about where policing wants to be as a service for the future. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to thank um, thank yourself, obviously, Gary Ritchie, for coming along to our podcast and uh, being prepared to answer all our questions. So thank you very much. To Austin, my co-host, to Emily and Morvan, who'd been in the background, thank you very much. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please do subscribe to our channel, like it and share it. If you have any ideas about what you want to hear on future podcasts, feel free to get in touch through the website. But um, goodbye for now. Thank you very much. Thank you.